Welcome to the Love Positivism podcast. I'm Shireen Oberg and I'm a yoga teacher and author devoted to the path of healing and heart-based living. And I want to help you to step into what you truly are and to your highest potential. On this podcast, I share with you tools and insights to help you move ever forward on your spiritual and healing path. With guests from all over the world, from different wisdom traditions, I wish to create a web of loving energy that permeates the whole world to create more love and peace. You can connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for more guidance and love. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm really excited to be back here together with all of you and to today present Tova Olsson, this week's podcast guest. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to uh, have this talk with you today. And maybe we can start by you sharing just a daily practice that is important to you. And um, if you have any or anything that you want to share that you feel is nourishing for you. Uh, okay, well, I begin every morning with first chanting a mantra to Ganesha, and then chanting a mantra to Saraswati, and then chanting a mantra to Matangi, who is the, um, the tantric form of the creative goddess or the goddess of all creativity, the goddess of the word. So we can call them the triad of wisdom and creativity. Right? So I always set my focus in the morning by chanting their mantras and then meditating for about half an hour before I go to wake my kids up and get starting with the morning. And then after I have sent my kids to school and before I start with my work, uh, or if I'm not at home, if I'm not with my kids, if I'm in, and at Umeå where I'm doing my PhD in the university, then I do my full practice in the morning before I go to work. But when I'm at home and I have my kids, then after they've gone to school, then I do my asana practice for about an hour, I would say, or so. And then uh, later on in the day, usually in the evening, I do some practice again. But what is always there uh, on a daily basis for me is mantra meditation and movement and then of course I do puja too but that is such a mm-hmm. you know it's, before I sit down to write as a lot of my work is writing uh, I do puja for Saraswati I do puja for Lalita Sundari, for Kali for all of the goddesses that are surrounding my little desk here where I'm seated to do my work Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And I was actually, um, I don't know why, because we did talk and we we had a connection and we both work with the Divine Mother and the Divine Feminine. And it's so beautiful that you bring up the chanting, because for me, it's also a really important part of my practice. And I also usually start with a um, morning uh, meditation and chantam, uh, chanting mantras because it's it really sets the tone I feel like and like invokes that energy so I really love that and that you have uh, the pujas as well and I'm just so curious how so somehow we got connected uh, through Instagram and you share so many beautiful things there 
and um, we're going to talk about that. And I just am very curious how what led you into this path and these studies and how you also have uh, like what you're doing academically right now. It, I, I'm just very curious. So you can start from wherever you feel called to. Yes, it's always difficult to talk about your personal narrative, I find. Uh, and as again, calling on Ganesha, knowing where to start, <laughs> like where where do we say, well, this is the beginning, right? I, I can't really say, but I know that I was a child that really loved the library. I really adored to read and to write. And I also drew, drew when I was really um, um, a child that loved art and that loved uh, everything that I know now are the domain of Saraswati. But of course, I didn't have any any words for that back then. So I was always drawn to to books, to writing, to all of these things. And then as I grew up, I was also quite a, a restless youth. I wanted to see the world and I wanted to know uh, what else was out there. So I left school as a 17 year old with really good grades. <laughs> so nobody was really worried about me. And I moved to Paris. I really wanted to dance and I really wanted to write. And then afterwards I moved to the Caribbean as well. And then eventually I came back home to Sweden and I worked as a dance teacher. And I also eventually started to work as a yoga teacher because I had been doing practices by myself. Since I was a child, I did gymnastics, I did dance, I did movements like this, but then of course I didn't know it was yoga. And then later on I found some books in the library and so on. So I was pretty much self-taught. And then when I started teaching uh, in some gyms and so on, I was invited to start teaching in some places. And then eventually I took some teacher trainings and workshops and immersions and so on. And I just kept on practicing and I never stopped. And that is, yeah, more than 20 years ago now. So it's just something that was always, I really loved introspection. I loved reflection. I loved philosophy. I loved mythology. I loved storytelling and I loved movement. So all of these th things kind of came together in the yoga practice. All of the um, questions I had about how this world was constructed, why there is suffering, why people, some people have more than other people, all of these things that I was wondering about. Uh, and also, yeah, just the construction of reality. Um, so yeah, that, that's the very short version of how I came into yoga. And of course, when I was teaching already from the beginning, I was a teacher who really loved to imply, implement philosophy and mythology and storytelling and so on in my teaching. And then it has grown since then. So now I teach in a lot of yoga teacher trainings and I teach theoretical workshops and trainings and so online, also internationally. Mm. And for the Divine Mother, well, who knows? Um, I always had a strong connection to nature. I always had a feminist agenda. <laughs> and I don't know when I first met the goddess in the forms that we're talking about here in the Indian or in the Hindu forms. I really can't remember when that was. 
but I guess he was in some yoga studio along the way. And uh, yeah, as I said, now my house is pretty much occupied <laughs> with paintings and murtis of the Divine Mother, even though when I moved this summer, I gave away and I sold a lot of my murtis uh, to people that uh, needed them in different ways. But yeah, some are still here with me. Enough are still here with me, I can say. <laughs> That's so beautiful path and uh, it's uh, it's kind of and I love the the how everything goes together in a flow I can relate to a lot of your story and your background actually uh, how we've pretty much uh, gone in the same paths and from dance to yoga but it's all the same like it's a meditation in itself um, and then how all of it also connects to the divine feminine because it's different expressions of of that one divine um, essence. So I really love that. And w- when it comes to so many people, it's still actually, although yoga is so a- available and it's so uh, in some ways mainstreamed, but it's only a part of it. Um, I think many people don't realize what like what you said that it's it's like a way of life and a way of uh, living and it's also so ancient um and it's so um like filled with everything that you can possibly understand um and it can guide you so much so i'm i'm thinking that maybe for some people who are here who Maybe when they hear yoga, it, it might be just the physical uh, practices that we see. Uh, in That's maybe the first also encounter for many of us in the meditation. How would you describe the yogic paths and traditions that you have uh, come in touch with and how they can offer different things to people? Well, this... Um, is a complicated question, right? Because, you know, I'm also a a historian of religion. I'm a scholar of religion, and I'm currently doing my PhD looking at gender constructs in contemporary European Tantra. So that is also part of my story, right? That I'm, I'm I'm a person that is full of doubt, full of critical thoughts, always <laughs> like to get to the bottom of things, right? So when we talk about the path of yoga, there are so many different traditions of yoga. And yoga, even though we can speak about it as ancient as you did, we know that yoga has transformed over the years and it's still in a process of transformation. So that is one part of it. But then if we go back to my personal story, I would say that um, one of the first teacher trainings that I um, had the privilege of attending was an Anusara teacher training. And this is a tradition that (laughs) got into a lot of trouble um, 
for for good reasons, I was uh, about to say, and there, there's a lot to say about that tradition and the basis of that tradition. But it was a yoga tradition that was influenced not only by Iyengar yoga and this way of trying to work with the body in a skillful manner, but also influenced by tantric philosophy. And so very early in my um in my practice of yoga, I was introduced to this embodied way of relating to the world, right? Not trying to transcend, not trying to escape or move away from uh, life, even though I think all of us as yoga practitioners are tempted to do that sometimes. And me personally, I'm a mother of a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, and I've been a single mother with them for many, many years. So personally, I never had <laughs> the opportunity <laughs> to leave the world behind, but I was kind of firmly held to my responsibilities in this world. And I think that was a great help for me personally, because I was somebody that was so attracted to practice that I would dream about just practicing for hours every day. Well, my reality was that I had very little time that I had to really um, squeezed all of my practice into when my kids were younger. Sometimes it was five o'clock in the morning and I would get up to do my practice because I knew that was the only time that I had to myself and so on. So um, my kids have been a blessing in the way that they have really uh, shown me the meaning of restriction and how restriction can really help discipline, even though I'm naturally a very disciplined person, I became even more disciplined with my time and my practice because of my children. So yes, that is one part, the embodiment or the tantric philosophy. And of course, the tantric philosophy is also the reason why I'm devoted to the goddess, because the goddess or Shakti, it's such a fundamental concept in tantric philosophy. So there is that part. So of course we have that movement part and that has changed a lot over the years for me. Sometimes I like to do a quite, um, like today I did quite a muscular traditional Hatha yoga practice. And a lot of the time I do more of a fluid somatic exploration, more of a um, free movement style asana. And, and then every day, of course, as part of my work, both my work as a scholar and as a teacher, I study yogic texts and so on. So both from a critical perspective of trying to find out what is the history of yoga and tantra and what are the differences between different philosophical schools. And so trying to use the power of Sarasvati, the power of discernment to figure out what is what and to be able to be as clear as possible in my own practice and when I teach. Uh, and then, as we said, meditation and mantra, and these things are uh, a great part of my practice. And since I've been doing them for so long, I don't really know how life would be without them. But I know if I'm in a situation where I'm living together with a lot of other people, for example, that are not practicing, um, and I have to really guard 
my practice, so to say, I, I, I really miss it. I really hold on to it because I can see that it adds so much, as we said, discernment, but also devotion and also sweetness uh, to my whole life and direction. Right? Sometimes I feel like, well, perhaps I am crazy asking guidance from the Divine Mother all of the time or putting all of the great decisions in my life into the hands of the Divine Mother and so on. But then again, I wouldn't want my life to be in another way because it would feel meaningless or lacking sweetness. Right? As we say in the mythological stories, when Lakshmi, when the goddess of abundance, of sweetness, of... of um, santosha of contentment is lost we miss that sweetness and we do almost everything in order for her to come back to us and that's how life feels for me when i don't have the power of the divine feminine not that she can ever be completely uh, lost because then we would die right <laughs> there would be nothing to animate us um but i need her presence in my life in order for me to feel that there is meaning and purpose and direction in what I do. For example, as a scholar, it would be meaningless for me to just do this in order for me to have a career, in order for me to have, um, you know, a certain status or a certain, you know, having it say doctor or professor in front of my name. I need to do something that I feel is purposeful. And that is why I always ask Durga, for example, um, before I do, is this is this my dharma? Is this for me to do? Or is this for somebody else to do? Right? And I try to follow that guidance as best as I can. This is a very scattered... <laughs> no, that was... I mean, Sorry about that. <laughs> no, I, I, I recognize myself in a lot that you speak about and also a lot of... Um, other guests who have been moved in the same direction. It feels kind of like we are all awakening to something. And, and then in that inner awakening, we're also offering it into the world in different ways because it is the time now. So like everything that you say, I would say as well. So it's like, it's really hard to maybe explain in words, but I can I understand exactly that that uh, that uh, longing and that trust and faith and maybe different things have led us into this path that we have gone through in our lives. The the most important thing is that we all do it in different ways. But I I, I see a lot of recognition in the the way that I've been working and also from a very like grounded um, academic place also based in the it's like tying into the feministic movement and and the desire for equality uh, but then it's also like being guided by something higher because this moves beyond like structures and and patriarchal systems and politics because it's so much higher like the changes on a different level than what we can maybe imagine so I really love that and that you have dedicated yourself in different ways to the path and that it is not just, I, I just feel like the, just the, the path of devotion is something that is really clear. Uh, 
I mean, and you can merge the path of knowledge with the path of devotion. It, it they enhance each other in w- one way. I feel like. So, yeah, I would love to know, like, since there are a lot of different traditions, and and that's what's something that I feel like really called to, like, understanding how, uh, like the different traditions and and um, cultures that in the world has practiced different things, but it's all leading to the same goal. Um, was there anything particular that drew you to the this yogic and uh, Hindu mythology and and that whole aspect more than anything else? Because we're both in Sweden, so we've been uh, maybe raised in different cultures also because I have a Kurdish background, um, different uh, belief structures. But what was it that led you? What was that awakening for you? Well, God only knows, right? I find this so interesting as a scholar because scholars will usually say, well, that is something that is called a perennial, perennialistic perspective, this that we think that all of the paths leads to the same goal. And I would say as a scholar of religion too that not all paths leads to the same goal because if we look at the different traditions, the goals associated with yoga have been really different in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, for example, the goal is something known as kaivalya, meaning separation or autonomy, autonomy or even aloneness. And there the goal is the separation between the observer known as purusha, sometimes translated as the self or the soul, and prakriti, meaning nature, meaning everything that is in a constant state of change or transformation. So there we reach um, yoga or kaivalya and the end of suffering in a way, very much similar to the Buddhist tradition by Uh, finding the state of separation, while in other traditions they will say that yoga is union, right? Yoga is union between maybe the little self and a greater self, the small individual and a great God, or maybe in the non-dual traditions it will be a merging into the state of Shiva or the state of Shakti, which is what the whole universe is made up, even though we live in this playful misunderstanding that we are just this individual structure. Well, we are this individual structure, but we are also consciousness and energy, just as the rest of the world, right? So there's a lot to say about um, many paths one, the whole the whole idea about many paths and one goal but for me personally and I mean I can only speak from the position where I am right I have no idea if I would have been born in the north of Sweden or in another country in Europe or with other parents or whatever it is maybe we can talk about past lives (laughs) Uh, we have no idea what we have with us but I know that from an early age excuse me, I had uh, a drawing towards an attraction towards certain places in the world and not others, right? And I think we all share this, that we feel like some people and some places are familiar, they're family to us. 
uh, and some others are not. And for me, I was very, very drawn to the Caribbean for some reason. And now my uh, the father of my children is Caribbean. So there was something that I needed to manifest there, apparently. And then I was drawn to Indian and Indian culture. And I've spoken to this in other interviews because, I mean, we have deities in the Nordic context, for example, we have Freya, who is very much um, a goddess who could be compared to goddess Lakshmi, for example. So we have this pantheon of gods and goddesses in Nordic tradition, but it's not as alive, right? It's, it's a tradition that has been buried for uh, for a long time, and even though we have some people practicing in the pagan traditions, it's not as many people that are practicing and keeping these energies alive in India, for example. So maybe we can say that, well, I have a stronger connection to the Indian ones because they are so vibrantly alive, kept alive by millions of people, right? Or maybe we can say that it's just my karma, it's just what I was born with. It's just because something in me was specifically attracted to yogic tradition and not a hednic, a hed, um, uh, you know, Nordic tradition and so on. So there's a lot to say about that. And um, it will have to get a little hippish as we speak about it, right? Because we can't know. I just know that, well, I'm not attracted to, um, to another religion, quote unquote, I'm not attracted to another spiritual path, even though I enjoy Sufi poetry, for example, like a lot of us do. And, um, but I have never been attracted to another tradition than the yogic and tantric tradition. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting what you said also that um, there's so many uh, different goals like you said and that's right because you practice the, even within the yogi tradition you practice different things to have that different experiences and and to reach something um i i love the the notion i feel like there's something that almost uh, comes to the core of everything is some kind of longing or some kind of yeah the, because that's also actually uh, something that I've heard a lot in the Sufi tradition with that longing and yearning and um, and even in all of this like I mean because I'm also studying religious studies and I'm thinking about this need to like um, materialize the divine and how we like it's it's so it's it's so clear how the the divine manifests to us how we need it to because the different um, the different um, shapes and forms is what we need like you say and and for me that's always been when I think about it it's always like a divine mother and all of these qualities and which, which uh, I think that because of the, just from a feministic perspective, since things have grown 
in in very male dominant cultures for a long time there's also now a emergence of like questioning these more the more patriarchal language even in the abrahamic traditions and that's to be we are working towards more inclusion so it has to be on all levels but it's so comforting that there are traditions that have these both already and it's not been like suppressed in any way and I'm really interested then because you talked about the tantric tradition and how you said it's like the the path of devotion and and like the focus is the goddess and how because also there are in the west a lot of misconceptions um, about tantra i think maybe you can address that since you have so much knowledge in it and maybe the the things that we learned on our paths is not what other people understand about tantra so how would you like what like what, the tradition itself and how it was originated and then what the what the yeah what is the goal with tantra well you can imagine i have a lot to say about this and we don't really have the time but just as with the yogic traditions there are many 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 tantric traditions and in many ways tantra is even more slippery to define or impossible to define than what yoga is um but very, very simplified. Maybe we can say that Tantra emerges around the fifth century, um, maybe as a pushback against more transcendental uh, traditions, traditions like the Buddhist or the Jain or the Shramana, the earliest drivers, the classical yoga tradition and so on, where the goal was this separation that we spoke about. And some practitioners will say, scholars will not affirm this because we don't have any proof uh, that Tantra comes from earlier, like shamanistic, pre-Vedic pre traditions, but as I said, we, we don't know anything about that. We don't have proof. Uh, but we know that from the fifth century around that time, there are people that are saying that they're using techniques that are more efficient than the Vedic techniques and faster and so on. And they are very much connected to mantra, as we said. Sometimes Tantra is called Mantra Marga, the way of the mantras. And they're also using rituals, they're using visualization. And um, um, in a lot of the Tantric traditions, the goddess or Shakti uh, has a really high position. So there is a turn towards more embodied practices and also the thought that it is actually possible to embody liberation or to become liberated while alive in this body. And this is, a, as I said, this is a really gross simplification because there's so much to say and, and tantric traditions are so complicated, but you can read more about that in my book that is soon coming in English. <laughs> and also when you study with me online, we talk a lot more in depth about all of this. Um, but as I said, there are there are Vaishnava tantric traditions dedicated 
more to Vishnu, Shaiva Tantric traditions dedicated more to Shiva, and Shakta Tantric traditions dedicated more to the goddess or Devi. Um, so there are Tantric traditions that are very, as we say, transgressive, where we have um, a lot of um, forbidden rituals and so on. And that is the reason that a lot of people associate Tantra uh, with black magic and also with sex, right? Uh, maybe in the West more with sex and in uh, the East or in India more with black magic. <laughs> uh, and then we also have more of unconformed form of Tantra that basically sipped into the whole a religious system that we now call Hindu, even though Hinduism, of course, is a colonial term. It's not a originally Indian term, even though Indian people use it nowadays. But this is also a very gross term that was kind of laid on top of all kind of different religious traditions uh, for the British colonizers to be able to say that, for, for them to be able to place all of these people under one law because the Muslims were under Muslim law and the British were under British law, and then all the so-called Hindus were placed under Hindu law, even though they were um, originally part of very different religious structures. This is another conversation, right? And so in what we call Hinduism today, there is a lot of Tantra, even though people might not know that or call it that, but of course, a lot of the deities that are um, that are celebrated, that are worshipped in Hinduism, are originally tantric deities, such as Shiva or Durga, for example, or a lot of the goddesses. And when we see that they're holding weapons and so on, like Durga or like Kali, and so we can almost be sure that this is a tantric goddess. Right, because there is also something inherently fierce about the tantric tradition, this concept of being able to move through the difficult passages as skillful as possible and to reach liberation, even in a way that is precarious. I mean, being embodied, being engaged in family life, being engaged in sexual practices, being engaged in whatever it might be, it takes a lot of skill, as we said, just to be able to be a mother and to constantly come up against the mirroring of your own children and to still stay connected to your practice. It takes a lot of um, stamina, right? And the same with all tantric practices. They really intend for you to stay engaged in the world while keeping an absolute perspective or while knowing that you are really the goddess, or you are really Shiva consciousness, as the Shaiva traditions will say. Sorry about this not being any clearer than this, but it's yeah. really huge questions. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, that's just very insightful in itself. And I have been thinking about since um, there is a lot of, you, you've talked about that, um, balance but also like this um, contrast between either being like embodied and embracing the embodiment and having that as a tool and then in other traditions it's more of um, 
what we can release and the less we can be like in the body it it seems like and and there's actually a lot of traditions uh, throughout the world that has that element and i'm just wondering just from from different perspectives why this um so there is for example in the sufi tradition there is this longing for self annihilation but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you maybe uh live like that all the time but in the meditation some self of self annihilation uh, can occur but then you have the practices where you i mean if we look in in traditionally it it's uh, i'm thinking about uh piety and uh the ascetic uh, like form of practice i think most recently i've been wondering why that maybe that's that since we are all, all choosing different paths maybe one path one path is easier for another person to for that yearning to be um met in some way but it it really does feel like um there is this constant balance between what we are what are we focusing on and how are we there's so many paths i don't know where i want it, but but it's uh, it's just interesting when we speak about tantra and that embodiment and then in other i'm thinking about, about those that also do choose to i mean in the christian tradition to to like uh, just give up the world and live in monasteries for example or if you choose to become a swami or you choose, like that path mm-hmm. and how that came up i'm just inter- i don't know if you've looked into that like the the embodiment and disembodiment like what that whole thing I think it all depends on uh, the view, what is called darshana. Darshana means, you know, to see and to be seen. So you can have darshana of a deity when you walk into the temple. But darshana is also the name of the philosophical systems or schools in Indian tradition. So it means view. And if you know the view of the tradition, the view will tell you how to act, right? And if the view of the tradition is that this world is an illusion and you need to wake up out of this dream reality in order to see what is really true you know you will have one way of acting in the world but then in shakta tantra for example we will say that this world is the goddess she is like a great spider that weaves the body out of herself and then lives in it as all of us right and then if we see that this body is temporarily right it will die it's not everything that we are apparently but it is also the divine mother we will have a different approach to the body so coming back to like the devotional approach and the way that you see it the way that you know people have different spiritual temperament maybe like the great saint ramakrishna who was a great devotee of goddess Kali, he used to say, well, there's one divine mother. And when she, prefer- when she prepares 
the dishes for us. She prepares them in different ways. Like somebody wants their fish fried and somebody wants it cooked and so on. And this, this was his way of talking about different religious traditions, right? And as a scholar, I won't fully agree as we spoke about earlier because we, there is so many differences in the traditions that we can't just all can't just um, place them all together and say that they are they're the same thing. But I think view is very important. And then depending on the view of the school, as we said, in many of the aesthetic traditions, the view is that what what causes us suffering is the fact that we identify with something that is changeable instead of identifying with something that is eternal. And then they will say that only the thing that is eternal that will never change is the thing that is worthwhile, is the thing that is worth our time, right? While in tantric traditions, they will say, well, the eternal principle of Shiva Shakti, of consciousness and energy manifests this whole world out of its own curiosity, out of its own playfulness, out of its own freedom. And so we are all expressions of this freedom and then why shouldn't we enjoy this physical expression because the goddess wanted us to but then of course we suffer when we are holding on to this physical structure or what we call ahamkara the creator of the sense of i am the creator of the sense of self right if we're constantly thinking about, well, I must achieve this, or people must regard me in this manner, or whatever it might be, or my my face must never get old, or I must be, you know, whatever it might be. And then, of course, we suffer. But if we have this playful approach at knowing that this physical manifestation named Tuva will never express itself again when she's gone, then, of course, I have to value it without being overly attached to it. So I think attachment, how we look at attachment, if it's possible to have this loose sense of attachment without going into complete disattachment, because disattachment or non-attachment has been um, a great thing in the religious traditions, right? And I think that that all depends on how you view the world. Because as we know, in a lot of the religious traditions, women have been demonized as the thing that cannot hold the male practitioners into the world or desire, you know, is what pulls us into the world. Well, the tantric tradition will say that desire is actually the goddess Lalita Tripura Sundari, and she is the great force of the world, right? She is that longing that makes us long for divine union, that makes us long for practices, and that desire is what drives every action in life, right? And of course, it's the same force, according to Tantra tradition, that binds us and that liberates us so we can be bound by desire and then have compulsive desire, right? We buy a pair of shoes and then immediately we want something else and something else, and we eat something and then we want something else, right? So that is compulsive desire, but there is also liberating desire. And that liberating desire is the longing for union that you spoke about, that we see in Sufi traditions, that we see in all kinds of devotional traditions, as Christianity is a devotional tradition too, right?
So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, this is, this was really good to hear from, because sometimes I go into these con- contemplations and this topic has been uh, on my mind since I was recently at an ashram as well. And just curious, like how, I think that you answered that question very well, because I feel like it's, it there. what if we can have a healthy desire, like a non-attached desire too? Like I have this desire, but I don't have to be bound by it. Like you say, it can be liberating. So why not uh, allow that flow? And then I'm thinking that that flow might have been a part of the divine feminine, which has been suppressed on many different levels. So it's like seen as something bad, but ultimately like that really strong instincts are very strong in, in the patriarchy. So like inhibiting that it's it's just interesting to to look at that and how it's been how it's manifested in different traditions and Mm -hmm. cultures really so what are your academic studies uh, your phd focusing on right now well the name of the phd the work name of the phd is uh, gender constructs in contemporary European Tantra. And I have earlier looked a little bit about uh, at how practitioners of contemporary Western Tantra um, talk about femininity and masculinity and so on, and uh, really looking at gender essentialism to see if these traditions that are supposed to liberate us might actually bind us into gender normative behavior and how come then people get into these kind of traditions and this of course is also very complicated there are many different reasons that we might um, find ourselves in these different traditions and different schools but i always find it very interesting to see um, how things that we called traditional or divine is of course constructed by human beings and as we talk about in religious studies then we talk a lot about power like who is actually gaining um, from these constructs Um, so that is shortly what I'm what I'm looking at but then of course I'm very interested in classical tantra and uh, in order to look at a contemporary phenomena such as what what is now called neo-tantra widely um, we need to understand the classical roots as well right so i'm doing a lot of studies on on uh, older forms of tantric traditions and then looking at contemporary practitioners in the west nowadays mm, so interesting that's going to be a great uh, thing to read about uh, and uh, yeah, just so amazing. You've merged two of my fav- favorite topics into one. So I think that's really important work and we see it more emerging and taking up space. So that's going to uh, change the way we see things in the future as well and the, for the future generations and this shift. So I'm really happy and grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Is there any last thing that you want to share that you feel called to sharing today? Oh, 
there's so much to say about all of this. And every time you spoke about something, I had a million thoughts coming up. So that's, so that's what is popping up in my mind. Like, I want to talk about this and this. But I feel like we had a really sweet little conversation. And if there's anything that you or the listeners wants to get back to, um, I'm, I'm, I will be happy to come back in another occasion. Yeah. yeah. I would love that. And I think everyone would love to hear even more. And for now, you are offering uh, you're offering online classes and physical classes in Sweden, right? I'm not offering any physical classes in okay. Sweden since I started my PhD. I guess yeah. I don't I don't have the time, especially since I'm going between Gothenburg and Umeå, which is mm. in the north of Sweden. So I travel a lot. Um, but I do offer a lot of online courses. Um, on my platform called Sarasvati Studies, and there you will find in English courses on Kashmir Shaivism, which is a classical form of Tantra, and the Dasamahavidyas, who are the 10 Tantric Wisdom Goddesses. Mm-hmm. And then in Swedish, you will find a lot of courses on the history and philosophy and mythology of yoga and philosophy for yoga teachers and uh, meditation courses, asana courses, all kinds of courses. So yes. That's amazing. Yeah, I've been I, I will put all your links in the show notes so people can find you and I love your Instagram so I recommend everyone to check it out. So many great like things that you share there. It's like a wealth of knowledge. So I want to thank you so much for everything that you do and that you shared today and I hope to see you soon again. I hope to see you soon again too and thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you.